Welcome to the Kaleidoscope of Possibilities, Alternative Perspectives on Mental Health. My name is Dr. Adriana Popescu. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist and leader in the field of mental health, energy psychology, addiction, trauma, and empowerment. In this podcast, we will be exploring mental health from a variety of perspectives, from the spiritual to the shamanic and beyond. What if mental illness isn't everything we think it is? What if everything we see as a pathology is actually a possibility? What else is possible with mental health? Hi everyone, Dr. Adriana Popescu here with you today with another episode of Kaleidoscope of Possibilities, Alternative Perspectives on Mental Health. I have with me today a very interesting guest and she's had a really tremendous story to share. Her name is Regina Grieco and she is uh, now a coach, author, and speaker, having retired from a distinguished career as an engineer. She was born and raised in New Mexico, and her Hispanic roots go back 400 years, and she also has Native American roots. Regina is married with six children in a blended family and has seven grandchildren. She has mentored many people as a professor, senior engineer, and leadership coach. She is an activist for gun safety and juvenile justice. Regina is a Georgetown-trained coach and a fellow of INCOSE, the largest international systems engineering professional organization. She remains active in this organization, primarily mentoring and working with young people. She has a PhD, MS, and BS in electrical and computer engineering and an MS in computer science. Wow, that is some incredible degrees there and credentials. Welcome, (laughs) Regina. (laughs) Thank you. Good to be here. Yeah, so happy to have you here today. You have really an incredible story um, of what's happened in your family and the ways in which you coped with that and have used some of the healing methods we've talked about on the show and some others that really have helped you get through some very traumatic and difficult experiences. So let's just start by having you tell us a little bit about yourself and your story and how you came to write this book and be doing all this advocacy work that you're doing today. Okay. Well, um, I, as you mentioned, I come from New Mexico, long roots here. And um, I had, I grew up in a family of four children and my brother who is 16 months younger than me um, and I were close for the most part. And we um, lost him in a very, very tragic way. His son, um, Ezekiel, uh, had a mental break and shot and killed his father, his mother, and three of his siblings. Uh, Includes a nine-year-old, a six-year-old, and a five-year-old. No, two-year-old, sorry. And um, anyway, this was unexpected. This young man had no background of truancy or trouble with the police addiction, nothing. He um, was, however, as we learned after everything, very isolated by his father. He was homeschooled and um, they stopped teaching him at age, uh, when he was a third grader at age eight. And um, as a result of that, um, he also developed some mental health issues and he was having hallucinations, both audio and visual. And so this led to this 
traumatic event where he basically had um, a break, we call it, um, and I'll have to think of the word, but um, he uh, basically was being guided by these uh, video or audio hallucinations to kill his father and his family. But um, immediately after everything happened, obviously we dealt with a lot of what was the business of what happened, but I took guardianship of my nephew, Ezekiel. And um, at that time, I also was aware of the fact that it was gonna be a long journey because we had started talking with the lawyers who would defend him. And um, I chose to go to a place in Taos called Golden Willow. Golden Willow is a place for grief. Um, it's a grief retreat house. And um, at Golden Willow, I specifically requested a therapist who was also a, an Apache um, shaman. And as part of my program, besides therapy, massage, um, meditation, yoga, um, and it was a nine day uh, event that I paid for. And I was in the, in the retreat uh, home by myself and um, they would bring the services to me. But part of that was doing a drumming journey, which is a Native American tr tradition where you uh, basically relax on the floor or a, a sofa and um, he puts you in a meditative sta state with the drums. And um, in that meditative state, um, you vision uh, and ask for your uh, power animal. And that's where I met my power animal. And a power animal, you can think of as the, um, the guardian angel of your soul. In the, that's the way, the easiest way I can explain it to people who are not part of the native tradition. And um, anyway, these are the things that I did immediately after the event because I knew that it was going to be a long journey. It was a very, very hard hit. It was very hard for the whole family to understand what was going on. We were all initially defending my my nephew and then bits of the family fell, fell away from that. And um, I also did a, there's a an organization called the Animas Valley Institute in um, Durango, Colorado, and they are a mix of Jungian technology or philosophy and also um, indigenous methodologies. And they use nature a lot for healing. So for a year, I entered the year long program. I did three uh, camping out where we were out in nature, um, one in Arizona, and two in the Utah area, in the in the Canyonland area, and um, and another one at a retreat house. So four times in that year, we met with the same group of people. They employ like the talking stick methodology. They encourage you to do, um, you know, basically they, they, there's a whole format for which we sort of dialogue with nature, and the idea is that nature will reflect your soul and what you need to hear or address. And I had started with Animus Valley 
uh, right after I lost my mom. And um, it was tremendously helpful. I mean, you do <laughs> months of therapy in a matter of weeks, you know, uh, just because it's so concentrated and you're so a, much a part of this environment it's almost like an immersion in in the natural world and you become uh, a part of this group and it's the talking stick methodology you don't talk across each other so it's not like talk therapy it's basically you tell what's going on in yourself in terms of what you're experiencing in this um, environment. And there's usually some sort of guides. Uh, there are guides. In fact, my guide was also a trained therapist as well. And um, anyway, this is the way I went about healing. And this comes from years of experience with trying to use uh, strictly uh, conventional methodologies with drugs that always had side effects. And at one point they put me on lithium and I was just basically comatose. And um, in my younger days, and this was, you know, when I was still having children, now my kids are starting to turn 40 and stuff. But um, anyway, it, I also used poetry. Uh, I joined a writing group and poetry would just come to me. So I developed and I have complete respect for antidepressants and that kind of stuff for people that, you know, definitely need them. But for me, it wasn't wasn't the path during this time. And I knew it wasn't the path. Um, and um, I used a lot of these um, techniques that I've learned over the years as I inter interacted with my nephew, because I would see him initially, it was once a month. Then we got him moved to a um, adult treatment center uh, where he was undergoing a lot of therapy and um, just encouraging him in the area, in the, you know, meditation and um, writing, that kind of stuff to get him to also explore what was going on inside of him. Now, obviously he had a psychotic break and he needed to be on antipsychotics, antidepressants, um, Oh, I remember the name of the uh, the um, what they diagnosed him was anti anti um, anti antisocial personality disorder. No, um, schizoaffective schizoaffective uh, yeah yeah disorder mm -hmm. uh, trauma based schizoaffective disorder with. Um, severe depression yes. is what he was. And I learned later that his father was beating him. And um, and a lot of the, he, his father was a, a pastor for the largest um, evangelical church. And using some of those kinds of beliefs in a way that were hurtful to the young man. Mm -hmm. So he had his own trauma that he was dealing with, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. And my brother did too. And I knew that that was why I wrote the book is because the media did a very, very 2D, if you will, just a very flat notion of what went, what happened. And they depicted my nephew terribly. And so the, the book kind of goes back to my brother's trauma, which was partly my trauma growing up, and then explores how that affected my nephew and all of the ways that um, 
led him to do what he did. Can you tell us a little bit more, Regina? I mean, this is such an incredible story about how some of these more traditional healing methods um, really rooted in, I'm sure, like thousands of years of, of practices, you know, with Native uh, cultures. Tell us more about how that helped you to heal your grief and your trauma. You know, what what was it that those methods allowed you to do that, let's say, yeah, the conventional Western sort of psychological or psychiatric approach really couldn't offer you? Well, um, the first experience with the with the Golden Willow uh, grief retreat, um, the drumming journey was just so powerful in that um, uh, what first came to me was the uh, yeah I the animal, um, the raven. And that's why the raven is on my book. And he led me through my, my family's home, the ones that passed. And um, I was asking him, I need to honor them because in New Mexico and, and lots of parts of the Southwest and probably wherever Hispanics are, and um, there's, the, there's a tradition called a descanso, which is you, um, you put a memorial to them, you'll see them all over the roads, you know, the crosses and the flowers or a bike with flowers or whatever. And it's to, to pin the, the spirit, the soul to the ground, you know, for the, for the person to pass through whatever they're going to pass through next and in, in, in the, you know, the sequence of being. And um, I uh, had to do with this gone so for my family. So I was asking them this spirit animal, what should I do? And so for each of the, the family members, starting with the girls, because he took me up to the second floor, which is where the girls were killed, and the young, and then my sister-in-law and um, nephew. And in each case, um, I heard through this guide, of course, this is a, you know, you're in a meditative state, and this, this is what's going on in my uh, vision. And, and I, I made a descanso, which was um, basically a, a circle with, two, uh, with um, and it, and it, and it, in my, when I finally enacted it, because I went back later and did the descanso, I actually put lilies with a ojo de Dios, which is a, a little cross that you make with um, yarn. And then I did um, one, the, the guidance I got for the, for the, cause I was actually interacting with the spirit and I saw little Angelina and um, JL. And um, anyway, I, I did a heart, a, a rose for, for the, um, my sister-in-law and a drumstick for the, my nephew. And then I wanted to go down to see my brother and I saw that's when Raven left me and uh, my Black Panther came because I asked Raven, are you my power animal? And, and he did this kind of thing like saying no. And then the next thing I looked and Panther was there and I asked her the same question and she kind of shook her head in the affirmative and turned around to have me follow her. And I um, followed her down to where my brother was and you know the the um, floor was dug up because of the of the blood and stuff. So I put a cro- uh, 
a heart there and she and panther actually gave me her heart of course when i did it in real life i created my own heart and what this did for me psychologically was it gave me closure it helped me say goodbye to their spirits and you know i in this vision that i had this all came about and then i later did it also with a with a with a curandera which is a a healer, a natural healer that we have in New Mexico. And um, so we went to the house and we did the, the sage. And I actually laid down these various descansos uh, based on what I had done in this vision quest. So that, that was a very powerful one. Um, in the um, uh, Golden Willow as well, we did the, the, um, the sweats, which um, you can think of it as um, the Native Americans version of church <laughs> or going to a church service, although it's much more intense because it involves cleansing of the body. Um, it involves lots of prayer, um, a certain amount of chanting. Um, and um, basically you're in a, in a cave of sorts. So the, so the darkness, in, invites um, whatever um, emotion and whatnot you have in you uh, associated with your soul. And that was very, very powerful. Now on the, the year long where I was in nature, um, there were two things that I talk about specifically. One was when um, I was feeling this aversion towards the cold because I grew up very poor and our house was always cold and I was in the back room where there was no heat and um, when I had that aversion to the cold one of the things I did was go out dig a hole put water in it and and based on a dream because you do a lot of things with dreams you do a lot of work on what dreams are coming to you and actually acting them out and um, nature provides what you need in order to feel that reflection. And I've experienced that before, as I said in my, um, and then the second thing that I did was a, a whole um, experience with a vision fast. And what the vision fast does for you is it gives you that opportunity to be by yourself without the stories that people are telling you, that the news is telling you, uh, because grief is a hard thing because we get so many messages on how we should be feeling and how we need to be doing such and such. And just being alone on the top of this mesa where there's a mile down and, and, and I was in a state of fasting for four days and I had a ritual where I would do my grooming in the morning, the combing and whatnot. And then I would do a, a, a circle where I would uh, do paper you know, do prayer to the four, well, six directions, the four directions and then up and then um, the earth. And then I would go out and I would basically walk in nature and I had a little route and I would employ things. So there was a grandfather tree with, with a big area in front of it. And I would do a method, like there's this method called the mandala where you put two overlapping circles and you go on one side and you express into nature, into the trees, 
one aspect of, of, of two polar op opposites. In this case, I did sad and happy because obviously I was feeling a lot of deep sadness and wanted to be able to feel the balance between the sadness and the joy because again, you get that message, you should be sad when, you know, you should feel a certain way. And so I spoke all of the sadness I felt and, and even acted it out on one side of the, the mandala. Then I went to the other side and, and worked as hard as I could to express joy and thankfulness for my children, my grandkids, thinking of my baby girls, you know, that are, that are you know, new babies in the world and stuff like that. And then I go in the middle and the practice is just to sit with both sides. And it just balances your soul, really. It just, it, it makes you feel uh, a sense of completeness and the necessary seasons of life mm -hmm. and, and how hard something like this could be, but at the same time, how much joy there is in the world. So it, it really just gives you perspective. And being out in this, environment and then there was this huge tree that I would go visit that was out toward the ledge and it had been hit by lightning and I called her ecstasy she was my ecstasy tree she so wanted to be you know reaching for the sun that she got burnt by the light you know and nature just gives you these various um how would you say um analogies or uh, uh, ways of storing the experience that you're feeling to um and then just being alone on that ledge i was happy i was content i did i had everything i need needed and realizing that you know life can be simple and um even though i was and you get that sense that there is a continuation um so that my brothers and his family were out there somewhere and and i felt their their spirits close to me so that's a lot, and it's it's hard to totally describe. The first time I went to an AVI was after um, after I realized I had been incested in my family, and um, I um, it was after my mom's death, and um, the the incest was still part of what I was dealing with, and um, one of my circuit nature walks that I did, I came across a set of rocks that reminded me of the, the person that victimized me. And I just had this urge to just throw rocks at it. And I just started throwing rocks. And then I started like, just screaming at all the, the ways that, you know, women are treated and, and all the ways that, you know, these kinds of things are unfair and unjust. So just acting that out and that anger out, it was such a release. I was a brand new person when I went home after this particular retreat. Yeah, and thank you so much for sharing to such you know great depth about these experiences. And, and I appreciate your courage and vulnerability in sharing about it. I mean, what, what really strikes me is, is the power of ritual. And how right. how much you know our cult, our Western culture, especially, really has moved away from ritual. Where in many other you know older cultures and traditional cultures, the rituals are still alive and well, and the rituals allow us to make transitions 
to have closure, like you said, with one chapter of life and to open up a, a different one. And I, and I love that some of the rituals that you practiced were, are so what we would call holistic. It includes the body and getting physical and includes the mind, the emotions and the spirit and how important it is to do the spiritual work to truly heal from, from trauma, especially. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And, and the sort of the culmination of all that was writing this book, you know, for me, writing this book, the first reason I wanted to do it was to, as a Visconso, to get it out of my system and onto the page so that I could pin it down, you know, because that notion of pinning down something, you know, to actually doing, you know, if, if you have a life journey, you could draw and you put little crosses at every place where you felt you lost a piece of yourself. And I've done that before. Mm -hmm. It, it helps you, you know, ritualize and um, what would you call um, put closure to those pieces because we all in our journey lose pieces of ourselves or, or, or get hurt in a, in a very profound way. Um, and so that's one of the reasons I wrote the book. The second one is obviously to correct the story because I was so distraught over how horrible the story was covered. And then the last reason is to try to change things in the world. You know, my entire career as an engineer, I did a lot of paper, a lot of writing around case studies. Case studies was my path because, you know, when I would go to certain conferences, particularly with the IEEE, the international, it's the electrical engineering one, um, I would look at these papers and I'd say, yeah, how does that scale? And has anybody done that in real life, you know? <laughs> and so case studies were my way into, you know, theory, if you will, or methodology. And um, so writing this book as a case study showed a lot of this, and that's why it sins of the system, is shows a lot of the flaws in the system. Mm -hmm. And um, I tell the story very, very um, candidly. And um, and then at the end, in, in chapter 40, I go through specific systems that failed along the way. And a lot of that sort of thinking is what got me into my advocacy work. And, and you know, I think in this time, I think we're in a bit of a revolutionary time right now where the pandemic, for example, really showed us where so many of our systems are broken and failing and need an overhaul um, and just aren't working in the way they're certainly not working to serve everybody. So I'm curious as to what you, some of those broken systems you may have found in your experience and that you write about. Right. Um, well, the first one was, um, you know, the, the brain and what a child can endure before they need help. And so if a child is in an isolated situation, you know, and they have a father who is very, very, that he's very, he was very afraid of, is there any way that a child can reach out on, um, anonymously? And of course, here in New Mexico, our children's youth and family services is totally underserved. They don't have enough people. And so even though 
there had been calls on his home, they didn't they didn't come in and interview the children. My father, my brother was um, successful in chasing them away anytime they had a complaint, like there was a complaint about his daughter's teeth at the church, and they sent or they had somebody call my brother, and he he's very very um, powerful human that sent him basically told him it's none of your business and he she's okay and this is just nothing and um so when 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 those kinds of things happen when a child is in in any kind of situation they have very little resources at their hands especially when they're isolated the way they are and then of course the school system here in new mexico and i know it's true in california because of the turpin case Mm -hmm. Uh, which I know you're probably familiar with, where the many children from age two to 22 were being abused, and they were supposedly homeschooling them. Right. And um, and that's what it is in New Mexico. All you have to do is say, "I'm homeschooling my child," and uh, there's no follow-up. They're not taking any kind of standardized tests. They're not being visited by the state. There's no um, paper. You know. Uh, evidence of being of learning that they they give and my sister-in-law actually wasn't didn't graduate from high school so they registered under my brother's name who did graduate from high school so that's a failure of the state and that gives us kids that are potentially abused and we have no idea how they are from a from an academic and and perspective and then the juvenile system was horrible (laughs) it was such a nightmare just the, you know, the first place that he hit, uh, they did, the only counseling they had there, and, and of course, you know, this kid was, you know, obviously um, psychologically impaired. Um, they didn't, all their interest was, was to keep him quiet, keep him from hurting himself and hurting others. They were not interested in healing him in any way. And, um, then when I got him into the adolescent treatment center, which took a lot of um, basically petitioning to do that, they, then he got better care and they were much, it was a much saner place and they treated him like a person, you know. And then from there, when they put him in the next place after he got, because uh, initially he was only going to serve, uh, he was only going to have, um, he was, he was going to get out at age 21. And then there was an appeal and more hearings, and then he eventually um, was sent to prison. But in that second place, or in that place that he was uh, the next time, they were gunning for him Mm -hmm. from the beginning because of his crime. Um, And uh, there was a a sentiment both by the staff and the the clients there, um, that he was, you know, basically a bad, kid partly because of the um the media and so he he got he got treated poorly in that in that particular facility so there was a lot of things with the juvenile system and that whole appeal process that happened was actually something that our governor uh at the time instigated because and we figured that out later because she had the cabinet secretary, one of her cabinet secretaries for the um, Children, Youth and Family Services, attending all our meetings with Nehemiah, with with Ezekiel. Um, I use both names interchangeably because I use one name in the book. But um, so 
and then she started bringing her lawyer to those meetings. And then we witnessed his the lawyer um, consulting with the prosecution. So there was this sense that the state that we had to trust to heal this young man and keep this young man in their custody was also trying to um, prosecute him mm -hmm. and send him away forever. And so the um, they actually did that in many ways and the story is in the book. Um, and ultimately they won. They sent him to jail for life and he will, he, he was at that time only going to be able to uh, get a, a shot at parole, just a chance at parole when he was almost age 53. So he, this is a 15 year old who was, had the brain because they figured out through brain scans that he had a traumatic brain injury and was two years delayed in his brain development. Um, so he had a brain of a 13 year old. They're gonna put him away on, and not even give him a shot until he's almost 53. Mm -hmm. Now, as part of my advocacy work, we, the New Mexico Coalition for the Fair Sentencing of Youth, just passed a bill, like the governor just signed a bill that now is going to allow um, people that have committed crimes as juveniles and are serving in adult prison sentence at a, at 15 years, for most cases, 15 years, they will get a shot at, at parole. So this is tremendous for him because he might have a, a shot at life. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, if you look at this child's story, he was incarcerated his whole life. He was incarcerated by his father because his father isolated him. He went to church and he went home and then he attended family functions, but he, he didn't do anything normal kids do, like go off by himself to the park or anything like that, nothing like that. Mm -hmm. And um, and then um, and then he he would basically not, he, and it's not good, chances aren't good when they're that old that they'll go by the parole board right away. And so he might die in prison the, the other way. And, they, and he's not an unusual kid and so um that was the advocacy work we did and so that was part of fixing the juvenile system now the other big contributor and the other advocacy i do is on gun safety my brother had eight firearms fifteen thousand rounds of ammunition all available to his four children mm -hmm. and he had taught his his eldest son ezekiel how to use every one of these weapons, how to pull them apart, put them back together, what to use them for. My brother was in the uh, 82nd Airborne, and then he was in the gangs for 10 years in LA. And so he knew a lot about this weaponry. And he bought all of these without background check. He bought them and um, they were not securely stored. And um, because of his religion, he didn't believe in, in the, psychology or psychotherapy. He, he believed um, uh, that those things were um, um, cultish and, um, you know, against uh, religion. Um, and so he um, didn't, 
Nehemiah wouldn't even tell him that he was having these hallucinations because he, he knew he would say that he was possessed by demons. Mm -hmm. So um, this kid was in a rough situation. So these guns, we just passed a law that child access law. And this is one of the things I advocated for now. I want, I advocated for a lot more of the weapons. Um, you know, the, you know, California is in a much better state in that regard. Uh, but we passed a law for child access to where a parent could be held for a misdemeanor if it's, if a weapon is brandished, you know, like they got it from their house and they, a kid brandishes a weapon. And if it's used in, in any kind of um, crime, like where there's um, somebody is uh, shot, then the parent is a fourth degree felony. So, and it's more for encouragement. It's more for a deterrence effect uh, than anything else. So those are the kinds of things I'm working for because these, and, and I haven't started on the school stuff, but the gun, the gun stuff and the juvenile justice. And some of the things that I believe in terms of the juvenile justice is that, you know, New Mexico has even just the average child has, you know, are you familiar with the ACEs, the um, adversary? Adverse, adverse childhood experiences. Yeah, we've talked about it on the show before. It was a research study done here actually in Northern California, Kaiser Permanente, where they looked at 17,000 of their patients and their mental health and physical health issues and looked to see if there was a correlation with how many and what kinds of adverse childhood experiences or traumas they had experienced. And you could get a score out of 10. There were up to 10 things that if you had experienced them, what they found is you were more likely to have issues later in life with your health, with your mental health, with addiction, um, suicidality, all kinds of different things. There's a major correlation. And, and, and they now understand that it changes how kids' brains function, you know, having these repetitive, you know, traumatic or extremely stressful experiences changes how their brains develop and, you know, just plants the seed for a whole bunch of problems later in life. And a lot of children just out of the box in New Mexico have, you know, you know, on the order of four or so of these. And then, of course, all children that are um, incarcerated have are like at, at the eight to ten level. Um, and so, what I think is that when a child is arrested, that there should be a social worker or somebody else, not just the police, because when they arrested you know, um, Ezekiel, there were two, and he's a hundred pounds at this time, mind you, he's a hundred pounds, and he's five, six, I think. And there's two large adult males basically interrogating this kid, you know, and he hasn't slept for 48 hours. He's, I, when I went to visit him the first time, it was clearly psychotic to me. I, he was saying stuff that was pure nonsense. And, um, but they didn't bring anybody in that was not a police officers. And these police officers are not um, trauma trained or they, they may get a little bit on mental health, but I don't think much. And so they need when these children, anyone under 18 is arrested for whatever reason, even, you know, you know, they found them with drugs. Chances are these children have are high on the ACEs. Yeah. And chances are the family is in some 
state of trauma. And without being punitive, which is the hard thing that the state has, trying to figure out what kind of services, the social services that a family may need. Mm -hmm. You know, there's many women that are raising children by themselves. Yep. There's, you know, my, I, I'm convinced my brother was, you know, PTSD from his military service and his, and his, you know, his growing up and everything. And um, so I, I believe from a juvenile perspective, we need to be, in order to save these children, the first time they're arrested, they need to be looked at, the family needs to be looked at in a careful way, rather than just a punitive method of sending them to prison. And then he's got a record and then that just perpetuates itself, you know? Well, I mean, and the original intention, even in prison settings was rehabilitation. They were supposed to be, and in some prisons, I think there might, may still be programs and things, you know, and mental health services and ways to help people, you know, recover from whatever it was that caused them to commit crimes and like go back out and be a productive member of society. But I think we've really strayed from that. I don't think that oh, yeah. that's really the, the intention with these institutions. I mean, what an incredible story, Regina. Wow. You know, for you to, to I, I think, you know, many people, if they had experienced the kind of trauma and intergenerational trauma, really, it goes further back, right, that you've experienced would have collapsed under that or would have, you know, maybe turned to like drugs or alcohol or addiction of some sort to cope with it. But not only did you take ownership of your own healing process and and sought out this, the techniques and tools and methods that, you know, you knew to be uh, healing for your body, mind, and soul, but also to be doing this incredible advocacy work and trying to take your family's experience and create some good from it is, is really incredible. I, I think this is a very moving story. Thank you. And that is exactly what I wanted to do. That's sort of the promise we made when, you know, on the, on the day, you know, at the services, the memorial services, and also at the first year anniversary of the death of the families is we, you know, we want to make some good out of it because it, it shouldn't be just um, <laughs> just one of the other stories and another mass murder that goes down, you know. Right, right. As the, I don't know if you can hear as sirens go by here in San Francisco as we as we speak. Um, how is Ezekiel doing now? Well, um, he's holding his own. It's rough because, you know, prison is extremely um, uh, racial mm -hmm. and he, they sent him all the way to North Carolina, which into the like probably the worst prison they could have sent him to. And there's, it's unclear why he did that. I think it was intentional myself, but um, there's, you know, a large um, black population and then half again as many white. And there's only on the order of three to five brown people and he's 30% native blood and, and then the rest Hispanic and he's got very, very brown skin and very unique. And they said this all in the court that he wasn't gonna, you know, and he got initially when he, they moved him to North Carolina, he got stabbed eight times and was in two very severe fights where he had to defend himself. And, um, but since then he, things have calmed down quite a bit. But for example, see, I mean, people don't know these kinds of things. You, you have to have a partner go with you to the shower mm -hmm. for, for obvious reasons, you know, because <laughs> you're vulnerable. And then, um, you know, the COs, 
will make deals with some of the gangs in the prison. And, you know, because I used to ask him, what, don't you sleep at night because he's got his own cell and they lock it, supposedly. But they can make deals with the COs to unlock it in the middle of the night. Mm -hmm. And so it's a, it's a very stressful environment. You know, they don't, they, they say they sent him over there so he could be in general population and get, you know, get some programming, but that hasn't been the case. So our goal is to get him into medium and he's trying to behave, you know, be very, very low, you know, <laughs> low profile so that he can, um, you know, get moved into medium and then from there get some amount of, a, you know, training. Um, because he's got to get something on his record mm -hmm. so that when he does go up for parole, he might have a shot, you know? Yeah. Wow. Really incredible. Thank you so much, Regina, for sharing yourself and your story and your experiences. Um, if people want to find out more about the book or about you, where, where can they go? Um, my website is transcending-futures.com transcending-futures.com and you'll you'll it, the book is featured in there and along with my other things that I'm trying to provide as a service and um anyway you can contact me through there yeah and any final mm -hmm. thoughts for us on um maybe like what you would like to see as the future of mental health or some of these systems these broken systems being changed? Like, do you have a vision of what you're trying to work toward and create in the world? Well, um, I think my focus is around children, which means healthy parenting. And it doesn't matter what the parental structure is. So basically healing the, the family and providing um, support for children because this is a very complex world and it's getting harder on parents to to you know to adequately provide and so that's my my ultimate goal and i and also it's just to create more whole people mm -hmm. um that are having children you know yeah I share, and i share that with you thank you so much for being on the show today um, thank you all. Thank you. Yes. And thank you all who tuned in. If you found this podcast helpful, inspiring, please do share, like, comment, subscribe, all the things that will help us get this out information out into the hands of more people. Um, and we'll see you next time on Kaleidoscope of Possibilities. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Kaleidoscope of Possibilities, Alternative Perspectives on Mental Health. This has been Dr. Adriana Popescu. If you enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe and share with others. To find out more about me, my guests, and more, please visit my website at adrianapopescu.org. See you next time.